You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Scholl, and I would like to continue our uh, course, our consideration of uh, political philosophy. We are now nearing the end of these particular reflections. We have, in effect, two more books to deal with. The first one we will deal with is Nietzsche's uh, book called Beyond Good and Evil, and we will continue and enter the uh, finish the uh, course with a consideration of Plato's Republic. And so what is the rationale for what we have been doing? As you recall, we began the course not with, chronologically not with Plato, but with Aristotle, who in fact came after uh, Plato. Now, in Scripture, you have this famous phrase about the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so in this particular course, the last shall be um, the first, that is, a Plato shall be last. And then the second from the last, uh, we will consider Nietzsche, who in effect was the, is the last writer we will uh, continue chronologically, partially because he sums up everything went before in some degree, he predicts what comes afterwards. We'll read then, as I mentioned, one of Nietzsche's many books. You may have heard of Thus Spake Zarathustra, or The Genealogy of Morals, or Ecce Homo. The brief introduction uh, to our book, the Penguin edition I'm using, uh, gives some dates and places in Nietzsche's life. He was born in 1844 and died in 1900. But the last years of his life were in a mental institution after 1889. Nietzsche will be a reading unlike any that you have ever uh, encountered before, though he is not unlike Pascal's Pensées or the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman Emperor. So I suggest then that you um, get the uh, book of Nietzsche, uh, Beyond Good and Evil, as a book um, of perhaps um, a couple hundred pages. Uh, I usually take it in three classes, but since we're doing it this way, we will, uh, what I'm going to do is simply go through the structure of the book uh, so that you'll have some uh, insight into how to deal with it. Uh, Nietzsche, um, as I say, the text is challenging in a way, and another way it's quite exciting. He will proceed to deny, ridicule, or mock most of those things uh, moderns hold to be true. He also rejects both Plato and Christianity. And yet, there is something fascinating about him. He seems to uh, carry to logical conclusions uh, most 
of the aberrations of the modern mind and see why they're aberrations. This is why it is interesting to read him. He presents himself as the real philosopher of the future. So you will see that phrase the, that he is the philosophy of the future. And he is, and he is to some degree. David Walsh, in his book, The Modern Philosophical Revolution, is quite sympathetic with Nietzsche's, uh, with Nietzsche precisely because Nietzsche saw the incoherence of much scientific and philosophical thought following the comments that we saw earlier to the same effect in Schumacher and in Simon as they talked about Descartes and Rousseau and Rousseau are the presumed founders of much modern thought, the thought rooted in doubt, in, in the inability to reach reality. The alternative is to construct one's own uh, independence, uh, independence of what is, whereas the classical position of St. Thomas and Aristotle was precisely that the purpose of the mind was to know from what is what it is, and therefore not construct it, but to find it. One can say with some assurance that Nietzsche is the most uh, present philosopher in the, uh, the century or so since his death. While he died relatively obscure in, in obscure circumstances, very few of the uh, courses students take in any university are not influenced in some way by Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a student of words, of language. That is, uh, he was um, immensely learned in that classical German sense. Uh, you might look up the chapter on Nietzsche in the uh, Strauss-Cropsey book, The History of Political Philosophy, which is a good overall view of Nietzsche and an important book in itself. That is Strauss and Cropsey, C-R-O-P-S-E-Y, The History of Political Philosophy. We had a, uh, there was a doctoral student I know um, a couple of years ago at Georgetown, himself a German, who wrote a dissertation on the writings of Nietzsche before he was 20 years uh, old or so. Uh, the thesis came to about 600 pages, as I recall. Uh, all of you are only 20, all of the students in every, every given class are around 20 years old. So by the time Nietzsche was 20 years old, he had written an enormous amount of material, as this young German had accounted. Again, notice the structure of this particular book beyond good and evil. The title of the chapters, notice its style. It is not as uh, chaotic as it might seem at first sight. It first appears as a series of perhaps aphorisms or short statements or paragraphs. You might note down the 
nature of the various philosophers and philosophies uh, he touches on as you read it. Like Schumacher's book, The Guide for the Perplexed, Nietzsche is familiar with Oriental philosophies. Indeed, Schumacher is a response to the central line of Nietzsche's thought about things that are not merely material and how we know them. Nietzsche is right in seeing that a new philosophical approach is needed. The basic question is whether he read Plato and hence the tradition before Machiavelli and Descartes, Descartes correctly. He certainly read them. Now I must continue now that the title of the book, The Beyond Good and Evil, itself deserves a good deal of reflection. Obviously, the notion of beyond good and evil is a curious phrase. It goes back in some ways uh, to the Old Testament and to the Adam and Eve story. So, beyond good and evil. So, recall that in, Adam, in the Adam and Eve story, that there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, which was in the garden, which the... Uh, First parents were not supposed to partake of. And so therefore, symbolically, if they partake of the tree, it means that they want to be like gods. They want to, they want to create themselves the distinction between good and evil. So when Nietzsche comes along and talks about what is beyond good and evil, you might ask the question, well, is it right? Is it good or bad? Uh, what, that what is beyond good or evil? So the thing itself has a certain contradictoriness to it. You'll notice also that the subtitle of this book is called A Prelude to a Philosophy of the Future. So a prelude to the philosophy of the future, as if there is going to be a new philosophy which has never been seen before, uh, and not one that is in some sense related to other philosophies, which in some sense is a dubious proposition, as we will see. But what I want to do now is to go through the chapters or sections of the book um, that uh, Nietzsche has written and give you some kind of general overview. Um, there are really uh, nine parts, as he calls them, or sections or chapters to the book. And all of these sections or chapters are broken down, as I said, into relatively short paragraphs. Uh, so in one sense, it's easy to read, and in another sense, it's an overwhelming book. Nietzsche was able to put together in one paragraph very often, and we will cite some of them, but uh, there's something like uh, 290 or so uh, um, uh, paragraphs in this book, so it's divided according to uh, paragraphs. I think the, the number of the last paragraph in the book is something like uh, 296, I think, is the last paragraph in the book. So that means there are 296 paragraphs in this 200-page book. And so, but it's divided into these nine parts. So the first part um, is entitled The Prejudice of the Philosophers. 
Now, what does that mean? According to Nietzsche, the prejudice of the philosophers is that there is a truth. So that's what Plato and Aristotle are about. So he wants to call it a prejudice. That is to say, there isn't any such thing as truth. And therefore, the philosophers who hold that have this weird idea that is unsustainable, according to Nietzsche. So this claim goes back to Plato. It says that there are things, uh, uh, and Plato says that there are things, and that we have a human soul with powers of reason and will to know and grasp these things which really exist. Our philosophers <clears throat> differ from one another by how they pose and pursue uh, this issue. But <clears throat> in Nietzsche's concept, the very idea that there is a truth is a prejudice, and therefore not true, he says. So what do you do about it? So that's the second uh, section, chapter, part, is on the free spirits, as he called them. And the free spirits are not abound by these truths that the philosophers claim. So the notion that the truth will make you free and not just freedom will make you free um, is what he's attacking. So a free spirit is one who is not bound by truth. This goes back also to Machiavelli, which you remember. So again, I said, pay attention as you read the book to the number of references that he has to earlier philosophies and philosophers and historical uh, incidents and people. Um, Nietzsche is not just being uh, a libertarian here when he talks about free spirits. He is saying that in his view, there is no way to know any truth, or at least that the theories as presented to us do not reach it. Liberty is not the truth that makes us free, according to Nietzsche, or the virtue by which we know it, but the liberty of not having any truth, uh, any truth claim at all. So remember that in Machiavelli, Machiavelli's prince, as a prince, had this freedom uh, from being bound by the distinction of good and evil, uh, and so that therefore he had a certain uh, exhilarating, quote-unquote, liberty uh, to do evil. So what, what Nietzsche is trying to reject is the notion that somehow or other that the doing of uh, good is binding upon us and is part of our liberty. So the idea of, uh, that therefore that, that you make a God, your understanding of God would be that God is complete will and therefore the complete distinction between good and evil uh, is purely arbitrary. It is precisely that idea in the divinity or in the humanity uh, which Nietzsche in some sense directly or indirectly is promoting, which is very much the basis of much modern philosophy and which is precisely the opposite of the positions of Plato and Aristotle in the Christian tradition.
So liberty uh, and not the truth uh, is what makes us free in this idea. Um, and virtue is by which we handle it. So again, um, um, the issue is um, that truth is a prejudiced philosopher that makes us free. And this freedom means we're also free to do whatever we want. So the third section of the chapter of part is called the religious, our religious nature. And this means that since few are brave, are brave or noble enough to be free, we must invent religion uh, to keep the normal folks happy. Religion, according to Nietzsche, uh, serves as uh, serves as function. The idea, I think, was originally in the uh, early Greek philosopher uh, Epicurus. So the idea is that since um, not everybody can can uh, bear this uh, absolute freedom, that religion is invented as a um, um, you might say as a uh, framework um, by which you can keep people from uh, uh, killing each other, exaggerating each other, keep them calm and keep them quiet, even though it's not true and they don't understand the philosophical side. The religion, therefore, is not really a belief in anything like that, but just a kind of a political device uh, to keep them quiet. And so let me quote uh, number 54 uh, in this section. A quote means she says, modern philosophy, that is the after Descartes, so remember what we talked about in Schumacher's book. Modern philosophy uh, has an epistemological skepticism. So an epistemological skepticism means that you can't trust your senses to know anything. We have no way, therefore, of getting out of our minds to know a reality which is just the opposite, of course, of Plato and Aristotle. Um, so modern philosophy is covertly or overtly anti-Christian, as uh, Nietzsche wants to say, although to speak more refined and more to more refined ears, that is to say, those who understand, it is by no means anti-religious, as if we just saw that religion uh, is used to keep people from really knowing the truth and to keep them quiet, let them, let them do these things without having to worry about it. So, modern politics and philosophy, in spite of themselves, seek to accomplish goals put in the culture uh, by non-religious means, usually political. And therefore, politics, in effect, becomes a kind of eschatology, a kind of explanation of the last things about us in nature. And they seek to solve ultimate issues. Politics does that, uh, not temporal ones from which they, for which they are designed. So politics itself, in that sense, becomes transformed. Remember that Aristotle had said that if man is the highest being, Politics is the highest science. So when you've gotten rid of nature and you've gotten rid of uh, any kind of an order and things, what's left is a, a politics which is unlimited, uh, which harkens back in a way to Machiavelli. 
chapter 4, section 4, here we see Nietzsche with an, uh, with his aphorism, the famous aphorisms and maxim. There's something like four or 5,000, I forget the exact number, aphorisms in all of Nietzsche's work. And they're all quite fascinating. I'll cite some of them. But he's able to put together in a brief phrase, this happens in scripture, in the Proverbs, for example, some of the Roman authors, epigrams, uh, which are ways of paradoxically or directly stating a truth or a falsity in a memorable way in a very short uh, passage. Um, so these are often quite amusing also, uh, almost always penetrating, and always they have a profound point. So you can spend a lot of time on his sections on the uh, this section four where he's talking about aphorisms, which he now puts in to his book, which makes the book rather charming, uh, as a, a summary of, as a prediction of where he's going, and also a way to remember what he's getting at. So take number 104 of the aphorism. So it quotes, he says, quote, Today a man of knowledge might easily feel as if he were God become animal, the end of the quote. Well, that's a very striking, striking phrase. I said, a, a man of knowledge might feel as, as if he were God become animal. Now, if you look at that phrase, there are several levels here. Aristotle has said, and obviously it is one of, it is to this uh, saying of Aristotle that Nietzsche implicitly refers. He said that a man outside of the city is either a god or a beast. That's Aristotle. So in order to be a human, you have to live in a community and live in a, uh, an organized society in some sense. And if you stand outside of that and are sufficient by yourself, you're either a god or you're doing by instincts and you have no uh, reason. Now, this passage also refers to the Gospel of John. Namely, the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. So he says, the, uh, Nietzsche says, of course, uh, that today the knowledge that God becomes an animal. Well, God becomes man in the Gospel of John. And so Nietzsche, of course, is using that again as a paradox uh, to point out that the kind of being that Nietzsche conceives uh, is not uh, is not the incarnation, but it is uh, an animal, an essentialist view. Um, so if there is no such thing as man, then the only alternative is animal. And who is this man of knowledge who, who knows this thing, as he, he said? Obviously, today's uh, man who is up uh, on the highest uh, scientific and latest culture is this man who supposedly knows this uh, thing about man. So take number 116, the aphorism. So, quote, the great epochs of our lives, of our lives, life are the occasions when we gain the courage to uh, rebaptize our evil qualities as our best qualities. 
to the great epochs of our lives are when we, the occasion when we have the courage, he says, to rebaptize our evil qualities as our best qualities. So beyond good and evil, the reversal of good and evil. This is the beyond good and evil scheme. Evil becomes good, good becomes evil. C.S. Lewis remarked that the worst thing you can do is to call evil good and good evil. Nietzsche deliberately enters the match to do this. Note the virtue uh, that he praises is the virtue of courage. So he claims you have to have the courage uh, to do this, uh, to defy, therefore, the gods who have uh, established this distinction of good and evil. Uh, when you do that, you elevate yourself equivalent to God, which was the temptation, of course, of Adam and Eve. The next uh, and last aphorism that I'll cite for you here is 160, where he says, quote, one no longer loves one's knowledge enough when one has communicated it, end of the quote. So you don't uh, love your knowledge enough uh, if you make it known to some, make it known to somebody else. Well, that's very paradoxical. What does he mean by that? So implicit in this aphorism is the whole tradition about pride and as the greatest vice, as Augustine says. So the greatest vice is pride, that is to say, the conceiving all things uh, to stem from oneself. Now, obviously, knowledge is free and uh, communicable to everyone. Recall uh, that uh, Simon says this, its very nature of knowledge is to be uh, communicated to others as a free act. Now, good makes itself more abundant if it can make more uh, diffuse, more uh, known. Thus, if I communicated my knowledge. I remember there that Nietzsche has said um, one loves his doesn't want uh, loves his knowledge enough, he communicates it. So when Nietzsche says um, um, I communicate my knowledge, I assume that you can understand it. But if you uh, a mere mortal can understand my knowledge, I am not superior to you. And so that is, that's what he's trying to say. The, the, he's going to come along and talk about the, the superior man, the superman. Uh, so I'm not superior to you if you can understand my knowledge, he says. And this is why hell is often depicted as a great, as a great isolation. That is, that you don't ever can talk about anything else, but everything has to keep within yourself. You might see the chapter in my book, at the limits of political philosophy on hell, when we discussed this a little bit earlier. Chapter 5, Section 5, is called The Natural History of Morals. And it is that there are no morals, really. Um, so that's their natural history, that there aren't any morals as such, as Nietzsche paradoxically says. You can have no history of something that doesn't exist. 
uh, morals implies that there's a standard, uh, and therefore Nietzsche has basically denied that. So if you look at uh, number, uh, paragraph number 203, where he says, quote, he says, we who have a different faith, that is, say, Nietzsche, we to whom the democratic movement is not merely formed by political organization in decay, but also a form assumed by man in decay. So Nietzsche is anti-democratic in that, and he thinks that that is a, a herd mentality uh, and reduces everybody to the lowest level, man in decay. And you can maybe this is to say, in diminishment, uh, in process of becoming a mediocre and losing his values, whither must we direct our hopes uh, towards new philosophers? We have no other choice. The end of the quote is Nietzsche's. So he has uh, undermined all of normal philosophical and moral existence. Uh, he wants to establish something new that's never been said before on the basis of his own uh, different understanding of uh, reality. And that's all going to be, of course, his notion of Superman and his ability to go ahead and do whatever he wants because there is no, uh, there is no uh, limit to what he wants. The sixth section is called We Scholars. And it is an attack, really, on the arrogance of philosophers by a man who will appear as nothing if not arrogant as you read him. So the, we scholars, we who understand these things, he says, as he's explaining this to us. So number, number 203, he says, the way with all masters. That is what the Plebeian instinct uh, desires here too. And now that science most successfully uh, resisted theology, uh, whose handmaid uh, it was for too long. It is now with great high spirits and a plentiful lack of uh, understanding, taking it upon itself to lay down laws for philosophy and for uh, once to play the master. What am I saying? Uh, to play the philosopher himself. My memory, the memory of a man of science, if I may say so, is full of arrogant naivetes. I have heard uh, about philosophy and philosophers from uh, young scientists and old physicians, not to speak of the most cultural and conceited of all scholars, the philologists and the schoolmen, uh, who are both by profession, let us say, uh, both by profession, philosophers and uh, philologists. So again, we have this 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 rhetoric, this over overpowering. When um, he talked about theology being the handmaid, uh, Saint Thomas, that philosoph uh, 
uh, philosophy is the handmaid of theology. So everything that Nietzsche says in a certain sense has a reference to something that he's rejecting. So the, uh, so if you reject that the function of, of uh, philosophy is a handmaid to theology and therefore has no relationship to theology, then of course it elevates itself into the highest uh, form of science. And uh, uh, then the philosopher himself, who is unbounded by any kind of prejudice or religion, is free to do whatever he wants. And what we're doing when we go through all of this is to try to understand the kind of mentality, the thinking that has come into modern philosophy, and particularly modern political philosophy, as a um, uh, justification or explanation of what men really do. So remember that Nietzsche himself was a philologist, that is to say, a, a student of words, and, and a schoolman also, a schoolman meaning a, um, a scholastic, a, uh, someone who followed a systematic and organized understanding of uh, knowledge. Uh, the term scholastic usually referred to the medieval scholastic writers like Aquinas and Bonaventure. Uh, the term handmaiden was used by Aquinas to refer uh, to the relation of theology to philosophy. Philosophy was the handmaid of theology. That is, it enabled it to organize and formulate its own order. So philosophy explained the order, could be used to explain the order that was found in the revelational text. The two belonged together in the Christian tradition. What has happened is that our modern scientists have acted just like their predecessors. Uh, remember uh, Simon's uh, comment that in a, at a convention of philosophers, we have a place where the deep talk to the uh, talk to the blind. Modern philosophy is based on irresolvable principles. Second, the seventh section. This is entitled, Our Virtues. What are the new virtues of the new philosophers of the future? So number 214 says, quote, We last Europeans with a good conscience. We too still wear the pigtail, their pigtail. Alas, if only you knew how soon, how very soon, things will be different. Quote. Nietzsche died 14 years before the outbreak of World War I. Passages like these seem almost prophetic in retrospect. That is to say, Nietzsche understood in some sense that the peace and the philosophy that was practiced uh, after the um, Enlightenment and in the 19th century was really not coherent and that would come apart uh, eventually. And he was sort of the prophet of that coming apart. Whether he himself explained things correctly or not is another question, but he certainly saw the disorder of things. And number 228, it says, quote, May I be forgiven the discovery that all moral philosophy 
hitherto has been boring and soporific. Remember what we said about Cicero and moral philosophy, that it really was the essence of uh, philosophy, which was the Roman view. It wasn't the Aristotelian view, but it was the Roman view of, and certainly Aristotle would agree, that moral philosophy was important. Nietzsche's virtues are designed to wake us up. That's why, and he does wake you up when you read him. They're shocking sometimes. But actually, they were usually described by the classic authors in terms of vice and were generally considered boring in that form to be living them. And Nietzsche will soon uh, uh, go into different characteristics of the individual European people. He spares very few feelings. Number 223 says, on recalling Aristophanes, the Greek comic poem, poet, and critic of Socrates, Nietzsche writes, quote, perhaps it is precisely here that we are discovering the realm of our intention, that realm uh, where we too can still be original, perhaps as parodists of world history, people who make a parody of world history, and God's buffoon, perhaps even if nothing else of today has a future, precisely our laughter may still have a future. Uh, this passage is found in a chapter called Our Virtues, as being uh, kind of the cynical laughter uh, of the uh, classical virtues. Recall what Schumacher has said about the difference between intention and act. We judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others from their outside, by their actions. The point of the New Testament was that all evils flow from the inside of us outward, beginning with uh, intentions. Notice here that Nietzsche claims this uh, realm uh, where he can be original. He does not find good, uh, but uh, but puts it there. Uh, Simon said that this was a divine claim, a divine claim to put order into our own souls and not to discover it as something put there by God. And finally, I will list some of the classical aphorisms or lines uh, of ideas that are found in Nietzsche. Uh, from these, we can often put together the general lines of his thought. So he says, Christianity is the Platonism of the masses. That is to say, the Plato was a was a, a, an elitist, if you can put it that way, uh, who taught us uh, our relationship to uh, the truth. And he says that uh, Christianity then comes along and applies it to all of the people and says they can all know the truth. And both of these things are both wrong. So Christianity is a Platonism of the masses. It extends 
the idea that there is such a thing as truth, which Dmitri denies to everybody. And then he says in another aphorism, the last Christian died on the cross. That's a very striking phrase. The last Christian to die on the cross, of course, he means is Christ. But of course, Christ, if he, if he was the last Christian, uh, must have failed because the whole point about the cross was to save everybody uh, who was not um, a God, uh, who was a, a sinner, and therefore they were real. You don't just be, you don't have to be God to be a Christian. In fact, you, uh, the whole point about Christ was that He could save all men, including uh, everybody, and so that therefore Nietzsche is really denying, in that sense, the fundamental essence of Christianity. And then he talks about the reversal of all values. So therefore, what is good is bad, what is bad is good. And that therefore, you have to be brave enough to say. So these are phrases that are uh, uh, famous in Nietzsche to reverse all of our values. And he talks about the what he calls the herd man. Uh, what he means by that is the man who follows. Uh, he's trying to say that man only ever do everything because we are good and follow the truth. That we do it only for by like animals uh, follow it, not because we understand it and hold it as true. He talks about the eternal return, which is intended to deny the kind of direct linear understanding of history that is in uh, the cosmos in Christianity. And therefore, the eternal return means that everything comes back again and there's nothing really new. He talks about the Superman, that is to say this philosopher who stands outside of uh, man and uh, knows the truth and is courageous to impose his own ideas on everybody else. Uh, so the very notion of Superman, in some sense that we know in the comic books and so forth, has reference to uh, Nietzsche. The will to power is what takes the place of truth and philosophy. So all there is left, if there is no order and no truth in the thing is simply our will to power and carrying it out with with courage. And then there is the famous beyond good and evil, which we have seen, that you might ask the question, what on earth do you mean by beyond good and evil? Uh, it tended to mean that there isn't anything beyond good and evil. But is that good or is that evil? Can you avoid asking the question? Nietzsche is also famous for talking about God is dead. And, uh, but that's a very curious phrase in Nietzsche because he doesn't so much mean it as a philosophical proposition, but as a judgment of the European peoples who have stopped believing in the essence of their faith. And there is in Nietzsche a kind of a nostalgia uh, that this wasn't true. And so that, that's one of the reasons I rather like to read Nietzsche because he has that sense that the death of God is not uh, so much a philosophical proposition, but a judgment on the people who refuse or have given up their faith. And in, num in number 295, uh, he says, quote, For I, as I have discovered, you Europeans no longer like to believe in God and God's uh, presence. End of quote. And God's uh, here and now. So he discovered that, that they don't uh, believe it, they don't like to believe it, which is an empirical truth in a way, in the sense that if you look at Europe today, uh, the Europeans are pretty much, or many of them, 
have given up their faith and established some kind of position, kind of anti-Christian position as their going thing and have taken deliberate uh, means to disassociate themselves legally and politically from Christianity. So Nietzsche is that one who points this out and indeed is a uh, uh, critic of it. So the very titles of the chapters of Nietzsche's are a sketch of his position. And as you read Nietzsche, note how these notions come up again. Again, underline each philosopher's system as you read it that he mentions. It is an education and culture itself. In number 285, he says, the greatest events and thoughts. But the greatest thoughts are the greatest events. End of the quote. If this is true, why do we read books uh, of men like Nietzsche, Aquinas, and Plato, who are dead? For the greatest events and thoughts, but the greatest thoughts are the greatest events. For the greatest thoughts, therefore, uh, become, in some sense, the events and cause the events. And he says, finally, like a rider on a charging steed, we let fall the reins before the infinite. We modern men, like semi-barbarians, and attain our state of bliss only when we are most in danger. In the court. How does this differ from Aristotle as we conclude these reflections, might you think? How does it differ when you say that the only when uh, we find our greatest dignity or we are in danger and that we are uh, modern men when we do that, as if we're challenging in a certain sense the order of things and we have this kind of sense of uh, of, uh, danger uh, because of the uh, power of these ideas which say to us that we are not brave unless we reject the truth and the good. So this will be the end of our, uh, we have a few more uh, words on uh, Nietzsche in the next uh, section. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.